Clem. Thank you, Tim. Well, we just appreciate the team this morning for leading us. I'm going to grab this over here. Um, you can just all check your mobiles one more time before I start to preach. Thank you, Josh, for that great idea that we would get everyone would be checking their phone for the rest of the... Uh, I still don't have it, actually. Who, who did get the text? I didn't get the text. I was very keen about the catering part of it. Um, I was very keen to volunteer for the catering because, just quietly, I absolutely nailed a chicken pasta salad, a chicken pasta bake this week for the first time. Now, when I say nailed, I didn't burn it, and it was edible. And in the Clark household, that's pretty much nailing it. Um, so, the, the, Josh, if you need there's just copious quantities of just edible, non-burnt pasta uh, bake. And bring, yeah. uh, very good. Hey, um, I want to jump into uh, what we're doing today. I'm really uh, looking for, well, before we do that, my name's Graham. And uh, if you're new or visiting, we're so glad you're here. I'm the senior pastor here at Cornerstone and hope you can hang around afterwards. As we often say, we do our best work over a cuppa afterwards. Um, say good day, meet some, meet some people. We've been on a bit of a journey um, in the last four weeks in the book of Jonah and we're going to finish that today. We're landing that today. Um, and, and I really do feel like as we were praying before we, we, we gather before uh, the service, and it's been, a, it's been a really great time of prayer. You're welcome to come along and join that if you want, because we kind of get together with the worship team and, and, and um, people have sort of got, uh, you know, roles who's preaching. And it has been a time where it's like God, for the last couple of weeks, really crystallizes some things about what getting a sense of. It's almost like a little preview. Little, little sort of prophetic feeling of what God might be doing as people start praying. I feel like it crystallizes some things. And, and it happened again this morning where I feel like um, this morning what we're doing is, um, is there's a runway here. And I, I sort of I used it now as I was praying. There's a runway here in, in Scripture for something to really take off. That would be just a work of God's Spirit. Um, I'm not going to be able to fudge it or kind of make it up. I feel like God wants to do something. I've got a sense of clarity about what God wants to do uh, this morning in an ongoing way, in you but also in us. And so my job, it's like a runway that'll, that something will take off. And my job is like the guy with the paddles, the ping pong paddles. It's just try and be as clear as I am about whether... And actually... God, through the book of Jonah, I point to it here, even though there is no Bible here, but let this signify where a Bible would be. It's going to be on the screen. Um, there's a clear runway there that, that, that's been pointed to um, and that we've been leading up to, but I'm going to really trust that there's both, a, I have a sense of which there's a, um, two words, that there's a, a revelation of something that reads, leads to a revolution. Now, how Pentecostal was that? I'm getting my Pentecostal. I don't normally... To do the thing where you do, you know, same same letter, same word or similar word. But I do feel this morning that, that God's wanting to reveal something that is, it's picking up from what Josh was talking about last week too, that whole idea of overturning. So that's a bit of a sense in which uh, where we're going. But we probably need to do, for those of you who haven't been uh, maybe following us closely on the journey, we do just want to catch you up, sort of locate you where we're, where we're at. So we have been doing this, this um, uh, series of 
uh, on Jonah, this is the four week, four chapters in Jonah, has actually been like a mini-series of, of a greater series that we've been doing, a theme since the start of the year, on the idea of living as exiles. And it basically goes something like this. If you look at the world around us, increasingly in our society, in our culture and society in the West here in Australia, but also the, the Western world, um, more and more that the cultural influences, the powers, the people that are shaping where our societies go, are going, where our cities are moving, where our nations are moving, are really, I don't know if you've noticed it, not too interested in what Christians have got to say and what they think about that. Um, and in fact, maybe what we're experiencing is not just not too interested, but actually quite hostile to the idea that there would be any voice. Um, now, that is actually for us, that's quite a new experience we're coming to grips with that as believers, and I'm using this really collectively, because that's only relatively new. If we look at the historical sense, that's only what's actually probably been happening for about 200 years, but it's really gathered steam in the last 50 years and really feels, it's like exponential. It feels like that's more and more the idea that you would contribute to a discussion, maybe in the workplace, but certainly in the public square, prefacing it with, the Bible says, or as a Christian, I believe, all of a sudden, it's, whoa, where did that come from? So we feel that. And we feel really uncomfortable with that because it's new. What we discover when we look in Scripture is actually, the good news is, that's not new at all. In fact, that's the normative experience of most of Scripture is written by, or about, or by people who that's normal. Actually, the, the cultural influences of their society were also... Um, if not neutral, then quite hostile to the things of God. And here's the really exciting thing. If we pay attention, and this is hopefully you have been, and what we've been trying to point to in Scripture, is that actually we discover that God's okay with that too. And in fact, when we flow, when we align ourselves with what he's doing, when we listen carefully, we actually discover that faith and the kingdom of God seems to thrive in those sorts of environments and that he's comfortable and maybe it's and almost part of his plan that we would live out our faith in environments where the assumption is hey we're all Christians and so we can all just assume we're on the same page so we've been looking at people like um, like Daniel who went carried off into exile because we discovered that God's people actually were carried off into exile where hostile powers came, where once they were this nation, that they, the context of how they grew as a nation, as God's people, was we kind of set our own laws and our own rules, but then they, they fell away from that. Um, and in fact, if we see here, just again, a little, little bit of tiny history here, in the... In the for a large part of uh, where scripture was written, a big chunk, and certainly where we're locating ourselves now in the Old Testament, God's people was basically like 12 big families, 12 tribes. But it got to a place in history where they actually had a bit of a squabble. And so 10 tribes actually split off and became what's known as the Northern Kingdom. And they were called Israel. And then there were two tribes... Judah and Benjamin. You can see Benjamin lost out in the discussion on naming rights um, because it was called Judah. Benjamin, quite a small tribe. They were the southern tribe. They both followed exactly the same trajectory. What's fascinating is that as they, as they sort of just got pretty fast and loose with what God, how God wanted them to live, 
both of them, as a result of that, and again, it was, it's, it's clear in Scripture that God was a part of this, um, come under the influence of two superpowers of the time. So we looked in the book of Esther, which we looked at, we, that takes place in Babylon, because actually all of Judah was taken off, well, a good, a good part of it was taken off into Babylon. It was Daniel and Esther. But Jonah, the book of Jonah, which we've been looking at, actually takes place in the context of the northern kingdom. And, and the superpower at play here is the Assyrian. And this is actually historically or chronologically before um, the Babylonians. So actually the, the northern part of the kingdom comes under the influence of Assyria. And we'll talk a little bit about, more that, about that later. But the book of Jonah, around halfway through the 8th century BC, uh, Jonah is a prophet. He does, he sort of, his job was to speak God's words into the community. He's operating around then. Um, and he gets, the, the book of Jonah starts where he actually gets um, sort of an assignment from God to go to the, the center of power for the Assyrian Empire at that stage was a place called Nineveh. Now Nineveh, oh, does this work? Yes, it does. Nineveh's kind of up, about up here somewhere. It's, it's quite a way away. He's starting from here, like up on the roof, if the map, you know what I'm saying, up here. Um, and if you're familiar with the story, which a lot of people are, even if you haven't been around church, it's one of those stories that's very familiar because it's, it's weird. It's a weird story, let's be honest. Um, Jonah uh, responds by going in the other direction. And actually, it's quite interesting to look at how far he goes in the other direction. So he goes to Tarshish. Literally. So this map is like the known world at the stage. He literally goes to the end of the world. He literally, he could not go. And that's part of the, the humour. There's all this absurd humour in Jonah. And it's like God said, go this way, which is a long way. But then you see how far he goes to, to, to go away from what God called him to do. Um, and so we've been looking at that story. Um, now, can I just take a, a slight detour here? For It's not a detour, but I want to name something. This is a really weird book. It's a really weird story. Now, I grew up, my, my parents were Christians, were a church family, so I grew up with this story. From And it is one of those stories. Who went to Sunday school? Who grew up? When, when did you first remember hearing this story? It's like, it's one of the first ones, because it's an awesome story. It's like, compared to what else is happening in church, this is pretty good. <laughs> so we tend to front load this one. Because there's, there's a storm, and there's sounds, he gets thrown up, and then he gets eaten by a fish, and then he lives in the fish. Like, if you're six, living in a fish... Camping out in a fish for three days. And then it gets even better because he gets vomited out. There's spew. And it's like this story. So we tell it. We tell it early. And so if you've been around church, you grow up with this story. And oh, oh by the way, this is true. This story. So you grow up with it. And we get familiar with it. Hands up if you didn't grow up in church. And you heard this like when you were 18 or 19. This is like weird Cam, was this just like, really? Really? The fish? They ate for three days and kind of... For us who grew up, we need to name that. It's a weird story. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable story. It's an unbelievable story. And therefore, it's, not, it's hard to believe it. <laughs> and actually, here's the thing I want you to understand. 
Actually, there's lots of Christians who we absolutely would call our brothers and sisters who go to scripture believing it's God's word and it's inspired and go um, looking and believing that the word of God is the source of truth. Say that this story is maybe like one of Jesus' parables rather than if you go through first, uh, you know, book, first and second Kings, Chronicles, that's history. That is meant to be read, and it's really clear there's furious agreement you, uh, about biblical scholars would say, that's meant to be read as history. Well, this isn't one of those books. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, one of the prophetic literature. Now, it isn't like Psalms, which, like, we know that's poetry, so we know we're not meant to, Song of Solomon's, like, you know you're not meant to take that literally. It's, and, and, and like Revelation, we know it's, so the question is, where does Jonah fit in there. Now there's, a, there's, there's some discussion about that. And there might be people in this room who have looked into it, who actually know a fair bit about scripture, who might go, yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm, it's really, really true. What God says is really, really true, but it's true in the way in which the parables are true, if you know what I mean. Now, I do not limit what God can do um, as a, just a matter, as a choice of conviction, as an experience. And so I, I, I'm, it, it's historical. And actually, the further for me, I, I can accept that it's historical. What actually was really important, here's where I want you to go to. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you get hung up on that issue, you've lost the point of Jonah. So we can, you can, we can I'll have that discussion with you wherever you sit. That's fine. That'll be fun over coffee. I'm not doing it here because it doesn't matter. This is so, what God is doing in this is so important. Let's not get hung up on a little thing of history. Because don't worry, God's ability to perform miracles is not at risk here about whether he gets in the whale or not. He's not at risk. What is at risk is you hearing what God is saying. And more importantly, you subjecting yourself and opening yourself to what God is doing. Because this is one of those books, um, it, the prophets. There, there's, there's prophets like Elijah and Elisha, if you heard those names before, where actually what they say is really kind of the, the, the core thing. In fact, we started this series, the, sort of the banner, the, uh, the touchstone for us, for this series about um, exiles, it comes from Jeremiah. Um, and oh, let, me go, let me go, I'll come to that later. Oh, where's my Jeremiah thing? It's gone. Where's Jeremiah? No, that's not him. It's not in there. Okay. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, um, you remember it, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah is saying something to prepare God's people to go after and captain and say, this is about to happen, but here's, how I want you to, here's what I want you to do. And do you remember we talked about, Jeremiah says, relax, plant vineyards, marry, uh, get, involved in the, get involved in the local cricket team. Uh, kind of be a part of the community, do all those things because this is what God's doing. And in fact, seek the peace and prosperity of this city. Now, they're talking about Babylon, dirty Babylonians, these heathens. No, no, go and bless them and be, be a part of what they're doing. Don't resist this. Actually, other, you know, other um, prophets talk about kicking against the goads. Don't be a stiff-necked people. I'm doing something in this. And actually... Kind of, you're going to come through the other side if you lean into this and love this, which is a weird thing to say. So that's the posture. Now, Jeremiah's speaking there. What's really important is the words of Jeremiah and what he's doing through that. 
Jonah is a little bit of a a prophet. We're going to see this later. What God is doing through Jonah as a prophet is actually more about what happens to Jonah. It's a little bit like Hosea. Do you know the book of Hosea? You might be familiar with that. Hosea was another prophet where he said some things, but actually God asked him to do something. Again, really weird. Actually asked him to marry someone of ill repute, a lady of the night, a a sex worker, a, 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 a prostitute. God said, I want to do something to illustrate something to all people about my faithfulness and what covenant means. So I'm asking you, what you're doing is prophetic as much as what you're saying. Jonah's a bit like that. We've got to zero in on the kind of book that Jonah is. And if we get quibbling about whether it's possible for people to live in a whale or not, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. And so we're zeroing in on what God, uh, God is doing wouldn't it be cool to live in a whale for three days? A big fish, sorry. Okay. So it turns out, just a little, is everyone cool with that? If you, if you heard that, as, my goodness me, our senior pastor doesn't believe God, doesn't believe the Bible, we probably need to catch up. You may not have heard. You might have turned off. We can catch up. Um, so it turns out, when you call your son Jonah and you happen to be a Christian, let alone a pastor, when they're born, you get given books about Jonah. <laughs> By some of the people in this room, in fact. And uh, it, actually, as it turns out, so Jonah was born 15 years ago, uh, almost 15 years ago. Um, so that was the first one we were given, Jonah and the whale. Uh, as it turns out, if you're a, uh, a Christian pastor, you, call you, something, you get given lots of books about Jonah. So there's a confidence you can have that I feel like I've done an extensive review of the literature (laughs) here. An extensive literature review. Here's the thing though, because of this, uh, this uniquely position, by the way, we kind of didn't, full confession here because I'm amongst friends, we kind of didn't, we named Jonah because, well, because Christy actually really liked that name and it was biblical. Um, Although that was probably less important than she really liked the name. So, and actually, to my full, full confession, I didn't really understand the book fully, and we might have been a little bit more circumspect about naming Jonah if I'd understood the, the story in its entirety, and particularly chapter four. Josh and I have been hinting the whole time, uh, I don't know if you picked this up, that, that actually Jonah is a, a very subversive book that actually it's not what you think it is. And quite possibly it's not the story you think you might be familiar with, particularly if you listen to these. Now, I'm going to actually play, um, Calvin, if you get that ready, I'm going to play you just a two and a half minute clip that I reckon is the great summary of most, not all of them, but most of the kids' books, if you go to it, you will hear this story being told. Thanks, mate of the Bible, Jonah. This is Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. That means it was his job to tell people what God told him to say. One day, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh because the people of Nineveh were doing bad things. But instead, Jonah ran away. and went to the port to board a ship going the other way. He was hoping to get away from God. He sailed for a place called Tarshish. While he was at sea, 
God sent a great and powerful wind over the sea that caused a storm that seemed like it would break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the sailors tried everything they could think of to save the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah was sound asleep, so the captain went down and said, How can you sleep at a time like this? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will help us. Then the crew figured out that Jonah was the reason for the storm. And they asked him, Who are you? Why is this happening to us? Jonah told them who he was and that he worshipped the one true God who made the sea. Then he told the sailors to throw him in the sea so the storm would stop. Now why? The sailors still tried to escape the storm, but it was no use. Uh... So they asked God for forgiveness and threw Jonah into the sea. The storm stopped at once. Wow! The sailors were amazed at God's power and they vowed to serve him. Now God sent a great fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, great. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and nights. Jonah prayed to God from inside the fish and God ordered the fish to spit Jonah out. God told Jonah again to go to the city of Nineveh to tell them what God had said about them. I get it, I get it. This time, Jonah obeyed God and went to Nineveh to deliver God's message. people of Nineveh stopped doing bad things and turned to God. They were saved because they listened to the message that God had given Jonah. That's probably pretty familiar to the story of Jonah that you would have heard. And actually, that's very, very familiar. That is a, a very accurate summary from most of the children's books that I've seen. You know what that doesn't mention at all? any of chapter 4. There's nothing of chapter 4 there. Basically, the, the summary, the story goes, Jonah is a guy, the, the story's about obedience, right? The story's about being obedient to God. And Jonah was called to do a hard thing. He didn't want to do it, and for various different reasons. He might have been scared, or he might have um, not wanted to, he might have been lazy, or he was just rebellious. But he just didn't obey. And so he went the wrong way. And if you don't do what God asks you to do, if you're not obedient, you're going to get swallowed by a fish. Something bad's going to happen. And he got swallowed, but then in the while he repented, and he got, oh no, I'll do it, it just give me a chance. The whale spits me out. He goes, he preaches this great message, and, and everyone comes to faith. And Jonah is the hero. I mean, God's the hero, but Jonah's the hero, because you can be the hero if you are obedient and do what God does, and then great things will happen. And people will come to faith if you're obedient. I'm here to tell you that is not, uh, listen to me well and I feel really comfortable, that is not the story of Jonah. That's in there. So that's not here, that's in there. That is not the message. You've actually got to ignore chapter 4. And I think 
part of the reason is we get caught up with all these other things, uh, periphery issues with Jonah, because actually, and, and Josh has done such a great job of leading up to today. Yeah, have you, you recall where he said Jonah as a book is a mirror? He used that phrase, it's a mirror. Because actually, Jonah is not the hero. Jonah is the object of the story. Actually, Jonah, the object of the story is us. It's you and me. Jonah is just standing in for you and me, particularly if you sit here this morning and, and identify and say, I believe in Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus. Then this story is about you, actually. And it's not really about your obedience, although that's in there. I'm not denying that's in there. And it is crystal clear when you listen to chapter 4. Crystal clear. So we are about to have a listen. And actually, again, I'm gonna, I found this recording um, we're going to put it up on the screen. You can read it, but I'm going to... Um, there's a spoken word thing. I just like this guy's voice. But the way in which he... Because he's a, a voice actor, the way in which there's some subtlety that he picks up that I think does really, really well. So we're going we're gonna to listen now together to chapter four because it all changes. You can get that story, but only if you ignore this next bit. You ready? Okay. Oh, hang on. Well, well, I've got to get it up first. Oh. Where is it? Oh, could you just press that, Calvin? I think we've put... There we are. Okay, here we go. Four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Does Jonah sound like a hero? Does he sound like a brat who's having a little tanty at God because it didn't work out the way he wanted? I mean, again, it, it's it's. Chapter 4 just turns the story on a dime. You can get that other story about obedience and about Jonah doing the right thing and finish only if you finish at chapter 4. Look at the way it even starts. 
But to Jonah, this seemed very, very wrong. That follows straight on. It's meant to be followed straight on. It's like halfway through the sentence. Do you, do you uh, remember what happened at the end of chapter 3? That's where Jonah goes, and after being saved, and I think Josh did, uh, did the story justice, say this was, this was not so much um, the judgment of God on his obedience, it was his salvation. He was, he was running from God, he was dead. He was thrown over, he was double dead. He was in a way, he was triple dead, but actually God had a plan for him. It was God's salvation that, he, that, that in, the, in the belly of the fish. He comes out of that. He goes, and again, Josh uh, mentioned, it's like at one level, and I think this was a bit tongue-in-cheek, at one level it's the greatest sermon ever preached. It's seven words where he says, he doesn't mention God once, and he says in 40 days the city will be overturned. So at one level you kind of think, that is, he's got some he's Pentecostal anointing going on here, clearly. There's another way that you can look at it, which I think it's, he's just absolutely phoning it in. Could, his, his hard attitude, he does not care. And so he's there, but he's still not really there. He hasn't, and we're using this phrase today, he hasn't yet aligned himself with God's mission of, of love. And so he preaches, well, does this message. It's almost like he's walking around kind of just, you know, okay, I'm doing this, but I don't really want anyone to hear this. I'm not really proclaiming this, um, aligning myself with God's heart here to see people come to him. He does that. And, but, but they actually, because God is God and he's working through whatever he will, the city does come and it does turn. And there's this, um, Josh was talking about the word overturn. You know, in 40 days, God's coming and he's going to overturn you. In, it's clear, as we see in Jonah's mind, he hopes that he's just going to lay waste. He's going to nuke this place. Actually, God's intent was something else. It was a revolution of love. And actually they respond to the Spirit of God despite Jonah. And they come and it finishes with the king saying, hey, we're, we're repenting, we're turning. We're coming. And, and then at the very end of chapter 3, it's God saying, well, because you've turned, I'm not going to visit this destruction on your city. I'm relenting. That's not my heart. Chapter 4, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. The heart of the great hero and prophet of this story, when people hear the message of God, respond to it despite his worst efforts. They come, they turn, this great city has been turned around. There's a revolution of love, of hearts turning to him. But to Jonah, this seems very wrong. This is where we've got to polish this mirror to reveal what is actually going on here. Again, not what so much what is Jonah saying, but what is, what is God doing through this? What is he revealing through this? You know, an, um, a number of years ago, uh, many of you might have heard of the church, Church in America, where a lot of our songs, well, a good bunch of songs that we sing uh, called Bethel. Uh, it's in California, a city called Reading. And... Um, uh, I had the, had the opportunity through a few things to be the senior pastor of that church, a guy called Bill Johnson. And I'd been an admirer from afar of um, not just the music that had come out of that, but in, in just, I guess, the, the culture of the place. I'd met quite a few people from that church. Hearing the way, it seemed like a church that was so grounded and down to earth, but had such a, a, um, a bold and big view of, of God. 
and I liked the two. It seemed devoid of hype, really grounded, very real, but also just putting no limits on God. And so I had the opportunity to be in a couple of different places, but one in particular to be there and in a very small group that included the senior pastor, Bill Johnson, talking. And someone asked him, I forget what the question was, but it was, you know, great questions just open up great conversations. People who are good at questions, you want them in your life because they open up. It was just a great question. Uh, and I forget what it was. Uh, but it was something about, like, hey, hey, Bill, and he's sort of one very uh, wise, sage kind of guy, one of those people who just sort of sits there and feels in no rush to give you a response and kind of strokes the chin and kind of very similar to another senior pastor that I know that had quite an influence on my life too. If you know Charles, just those long silences um, where he never felt rushed to, to fill a silence at all. Um, I know another guy actually like that as well. Uh, he's, he's his father's son in that guy. Anyway, um, someone asked him about, like, what do you think's going on in the body of Christ in the world? It was like a big question. Tell us what's going on. And I remember at the time he said that he, he sensed that in the coming days for the church, and he was talking particularly in the West, um, you know, in America, Australia, maybe Western Europe, that there'll be sort of a division or a discussion, a dividing line over how good really is God? How good is he? I mean, we all say he's good, but how good? Is he that good? And as he said this, it was like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you hear something and you feel like it's really true, but you haven't, your head hasn't caught up. It felt like that. It's like, oh, that seems really, really true. I'm not sure why. But he was particularly talking about the church, that there's going to be this sort of increasingly, almost like a, I don't think he talked about a dividing point, but a discussion. How good is God? And I thought, man, that's such a, as, that's such a fresh sort of real now take on things. It turns out that's just what, that, that's what Jonah's about. That actually, the heart of Jonah is how good is God? How, how good really is God? Um, you see it all turned. It, this story turns in verse 4. It starts with, but, uh, but Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, and this, uh, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to, this, this, he's saying, this is the reason I left. I wasn't scared of Nineveh. I wasn't lazy. This is why. I, now, get this. I knew that you are gracious and com, are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. What's going on there? He's saying, I, I knew that you are a God who, who's gracious and compassionate God, but I'm not happy with it. What is going on here? What's even more interesting is that actually Jonah, for keen observers, you recognise Jonah is actually quoting back God to God. <coughs> this actually uh, is God's words about himself at a really, really pivotal time that gives us a further clue about what the book of Jonah is really about, about what the mirror is saying about us. Um, fortunately, someone was there and put it on Instagram. Uh, there was a, a photo of it. This is on top of... This is not literally. But this is Moses with God when he's receiving the law. Um, 
And it points to this, this balance that we always struggle with, this, this part of God that we, we know God, if you've been around and you've read it and you've kind of got some level of faith in it, God's good and he's nice and gracious and loving. Da, da, da. But he's also, he's also got some very clear ideas about how life should be lived, if you've read his book. There's things that are right, there's things that are wrong. And it also seems that it's very clear that there's consequences here and eternally, it would seem. So how do we, the, the age-old question, folks, here we are again. This is where Jonah is living. God's grace and his love and his compassion and his mercy with his justice, with his wrath, with, uh, with his law. How does this weigh out? And so Jonah, what's more important? And, and so Jonah quotes back to God and says, I knew God, that you were gracious, loving, compassionate. These were God's words. As he is giving Moses the tablets, as he's handing down the law and grab this, he starts by saying, I'm Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion and sin. This is God in the context of, okay, I'm about to do something here with the law, but I want you to filter it all through who I am. This is who I am. I'm about to do something, but this is who I am. I'm the God of love. And so when Jonah says, I knew you, that he's saying, I'm familiar with what you said about yourself. I, I thought this could be true. But then it does go on to say, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children of the third and fourth generations. Here's the intent, though. Sin, brokenness, pain, it's all real. There is consequence. God is concerned about it. He's not ignoring it. He will deal with it because there's issues of justice there that need to be sorted out. There's issues of fairness. There's issues of what is right or wrong. But all of that is to be filtered through what he says first. You first, to understand what place that has in the kingdom, you first got to align yourself with his, his character, his identity, and his mission of love. And this was the turning point that Jonah struggled with. He couldn't get there. He couldn't get there. Well, it, it was a point of division. And so even after all of this, even after all of this, he's in the same place where he's, where he's not happy with, who, what, with what God's doing. Because he, he was wanting, for all sorts of reasons, the second half to be outworked. That's what he was here for. And so here the mirror is revealing Jonah's heart. And if we're honest and remembering again the purpose of this, it's to say, Jonah is us. Jonah is us. And you know what I'm saying here, I'm sure. The times when... If you're really, really, really honest with yourself, the times when you're, God, why are you letting them succeed in life? Why do they get blessing? Look at all that stuff in there. Look, look at what they do. Look at who they are. Why do they, and why is my life like this? This is not fair. This is not right. This is just like you. You give them a break all the time. Ah, oh, this greasy grace. It's greasy grace. Slippy, you heard that term before? It's cheap grace. It's not good. They just take it for granted, Lord. But I, I do the right thing. You recognize that mirror? 
It's what it is to be human, isn't it? It's what it is to be human. So God is dealing with that here through, through Jonah. As we sat down and Josh and I were planning through this, we, we came up with these, uh, again, it was sort of giving you a hint of what the agenda was. Each one of the, the books we framed in terms of the real agenda of Jonah, the real message in revealing love. So we see Jonah running from love. We, we see in, in the belly of the fish, it's actually a, a, a terrific love, a ter- both terrifying and terrific love of God that saves him. That is, in, in the full sense of the word, uh, a terrific way to be saved. Um, overturned by love. That, that the city of Nineveh was actually overturned by the love of God, not so much of Jonah. And here, the last point, we're aligning with love. Now, the great question... Uh, what, what I love about the book of Jonah is that it, it's unresolved. If we go back to um, the way in which, uh, where is it? It's at the end. Verse 13. God, if this is the very last verse. And should I not have great concern for the, uh, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? It ends a bit bumpy, doesn't it? The weird thing about the animals. I think that's probably some of the, the syntax of the language. But, effect, but, but effectively, the book ends unresolved. Jonah is unresolved. What we know is the, the plight and the future of, of, the, um, of all of the, the non-Christians, the unbelievers, it's all resolved. We know about the sailors. They're good. They're worshipping God. We left them worshipping God. They're good. We know about Nineveh. They've turned and their city is experiencing a revolution of love. We don't know what happens to Jonah. There's a question. And God just leaves it hanging. Because, again, Jonah's the object, but actually we're the object. He wants this question to hang. He's basically saying, Jonah, how good do you think I am? Do you think I'm that good? You seem to be having trouble with the fact that my heart could be for, be, be for people who are far from me, who've, who've lived lives of adultery. And Nineveh was famous in the, in the known world at the time for being just a, a debaucherous city. And Jonah's really struggling with this because he's got to go back and tell his friends, all his other Jewish friends, who just thumb their nose at those, that group of people, that he was the agent to save them. And he's not going to be... There's all sorts of things going on for Jonah here that he's not happy about. And, and God leaves him with the question, well, how good do you think I am? And this is where I think there is a revolution of the overturning of Jonah's life. We don't know what happens with him. We don't know how he answers that. But the same question is asked of us. And the same question in this day and age is being asked of the church. It's being asked of Cornerstone. How loving do you think? How how broad is God's grace? Think about... Actually, when, when we were um, coming up with these, these phrases here, Josh actually said something that I wanted to make the... Um, sorry, mate. I actually wanted to make this sentence he came up with, the kind of... the, the title of the whole thing, but it would have been giving it away because I just thought it was brilliant. I thought it was really brilliant because it lands it. 
It really lands the question, hopefully in a way that is a bit of a mirror to your heart. If you, again, if you've been around church, you're familiar with this. The Lord loves the sinner and he hates the sin. It's a way in which we've tried to, a little phrase, we've tried to deal with those two things. Okay, God's compassion, he loves people, but he hates the sin. The reality is, if you're honest and if I'm honest, the way I've heard that and the way I've used it, it goes like, yeah, the Lord loves, loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. It's a bit more, if we were to say it, that's the context we tend to use it. The Lord loves the sinner, sure, but he hates the sin. Let's be really clear. Let's be really clear. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. There's a truth in this. It's really important. But I, I want to suggest there's a nuance here that Jonah brings forward, that we can, we can adapt this. That actually, if we were to summarize the book of Jonah, we'd say, the Lord's love for Nineveh is far, far greater than his hatred of their sin. The Lord's love for Nineveh is far, far greater than his hatred of their sin. The Lord's love for Brisbane is far, far greater than his hatred of his sin. That's there. There's, there's brokenness, there's messed up stuff. There's things that are evil and wrong. And yet, the God we worship and align to for his mission in the world loves the city far, far more. Let's see if we can shine the mirror, polish the mirror even more. The Lord's love for your neighbour is far, far greater than their sin. The Lord's love for that person at work or whoever flashes to mind when you think of the person whose life represents someone who is not just far from God, but who you would say is ungodly or detestable or whatever lifestyle choice they're making or whatever belief set that they've got, picture them right now in your face, in your mind. The Lord's love for them is far, far greater. So how does that shape our life? If we are to align with that kind of love, what's the next conversation look like? What's the next action look like if we're to align with God's mission for love? Because there's a question there that he's asking us. When we polish the mirror and we see it's actually Jonah's not the hero. Jonah's the object. God's saying something to him. He's actually far from it. It's not resolved. It seems to be the key issue is it for him to resolve how much how much does God love? We polish it a little bit more and we see it's actually us we're looking at. Who is that group of people or person who to you represents all that is far from God and wrong and evil and sinful? God's love for them is far, far, far greater than his hatred of their sin. He wants someone to go and tell him. Are you going to walk in and just mumble a five, seven sentence sermon and kind of just leave a little tract? Or, or does something need to be lived out? Demonstrate. Imagine, imagine a church full of people who really believe that God loves this city. Who, who actually is prepared to shape how they live and walk about every day of the week and what they do together, and what they choose to express based on the fact that we believe God, God's love for this city is far greater than its actions. Where would we go? What would we do? As I was reflecting on that, I'll get the team to come up. As I was reflecting on that question, 
Because I, I want to answer that question. As, as, as the senior pastor here, there's some things that are my responsibility um, for us together, to lead us in mission. And I want to answer that question better. Um, but I, I want to ask you, like, what does that look like? If, if we're a church that really loves this city, what would we do? What should we do? And as I was thinking about that, kind of wanting to land that there as a challenge, I then was thinking, I'm so thankful that we are surrounded by a group of people who are answering that already. I was thinking about Peter and Dot and the work they've been doing for decades. Decades for people who have experienced the brokenness and sin in their identity and their sexual identity, and, and they just go in and they love. They just walk in. They, they've been living this out for ages. And I'm thinking about the guys who go down on Friday night, Gary and Lynn, Lynn Wright, and go and be amongst the city and hand out. That's what it looks like. And, and I know Steve Bell has just got a... Where's Steve? He was here this morning. There he is. His role is just uh, with, with the chaplains there. It's through every Saturday night about 4 o'clock. You'll, you'll find him out on the streets loving the city. We've got chaplains in our midst. We are surrounded by people who are living this out. Here's the thing, just as we, as we wrap up here. If we're going to have that kind of... If we're going to be overturned like that as a church, then we've got to have a revelation. Because the last thing I want to say here is the Lord's love for you is far, far greater than your worst moment. I've got some doozies. I've got some, I've got some moments that I am so deeply regretful and embarrassed and ashamed of that if I hadn't had a revelation of God's love, I, I, I wouldn't be able to give voice to them. But I've experienced that His love's greater than that. And I think if we're going to be a people who are revolutionized, who are overturned, if we're going to be a church by that, we've got to have that revealed in greater measure. So as I finish this morning, just as, uh, as we sing, I'm just going to ask you to sit there. And do something uncomfortable. See if you can polish the mirror. And think of what is that moment. If you can. This is this this I get this takes courage. This takes a vulnerability. I'm asking you to do that before God, not before me. But to sit there and and offer up that thing, that action, that habit. Give voice to it. Picture it. And I just want to trust for a moment that you would get just a sense of how much greater God's love for you. Picture the cross, what he was prepared to do so that you wouldn't have to walk in shame, that you wouldn't have to experience the death and brokenness there. His love for you is far, far, far greater. Thanks, guys. Let the king of my heart be the mountain I run, the fountain I drink from, oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life, oh, he is my song, cause you are
in that moment that there's that you need a greater revelation of that in your own life that God's love for you is far far greater not just a little bit far far greater it's more than enough for your worst moment if, if you feel that there's a blockage there for you uh, then you need to reveal that I'd love to we'd love to stand with you and just believe God's going to do something I don't have any magic potion or magic words I just know it to be true I'd love to stand and pray and believe that God wants to reveal that this morning to you if you are signing up for a revolution and want to be a part of God revealing that to others in our city and sense that God might be doing something at work I'd love to pray with you about that too because I feel like God wants to form us and shape us. What does a church look like that's absolutely convinced that God's love for this city is far greater than his hatred of its sin? If that's you too, I'd invite you to come forward. We're just going to spend some time in the street. Just please feel free to go next door. Let's just respect that there are people doing business with God here. So maybe take conversations and things next, uh, next door. But be blessed as you go. And uh, yeah. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.homecommunityworld.com.